Welcome to That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher. I'm Steve Scher. Usually on our show, we gather a group of people around a big table at the Bryant Corner Cafe in Seattle to talk books. But every once in a while, we sit down with the author of a book. I sat down with Eli Sanders in Volunteer Park. It was a sunny Tuesday, February 2nd, the day his book was released. Eli Sanders' book is based on his Pulitzer Prize-winning account of the aggravated murder trial of Isaiah Calibu. The centerpiece of the trial was testimony of Jennifer Hopper, who was brutally attacked by Calibu in the South Park home she shared with her partner, Teresa Butts. Teresa Butts died. Calibu has been sentenced to life in prison. While the city slept, a love lost to violence and a young man's descent into madness is an indictment of our failed criminal justice system and mental health system. It's also a story about love and commitment that persists and the power of forgiveness to heal. While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Young Man's Descent into Madness by Eli Sanders, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. You know, Eli, I thought it was funny that you wanted to um, come outside to meet on a, on a rare sunny winter day in Seattle because there's a lot of rain and darkness and gloom, not just in the story, but in the city you write about. Well, then maybe it makes sense why I want to grab the sun when I can. <laughs> Amen. You write about the neighborhood that is attached to the city by a rickety bridge that in the, in the course of writing this is, is shut down. And the promises made. Did the city become character as much as the individuals you were writing about after a while? It was a strong presence for me as I traveled around the Puget Sound area to sort of map the paths of the three people who collide. And uh, in these different places, I started to... I guess, get into a kind of conversation with my surroundings. How do you feel about the surroundings that are embedded in this in this crime? How do you feel about this city? city you born and raised in? I mean, I feel very strongly attached to it. As you say, I was born and raised here. I also, I feel, uh, I feel like I've opened my eyes through the, this work to a greater amount of pain and unmet need that's in this city than I was aware of it's not that I was naive but there is a lot that we um, accept just the other day the new homeless count in the city double what it was five years ago and the affordability issue that's occurring and that plays a part in the lives of the people you write about sure the the cost of living is a part of why they were all living in the areas that they were Teresa and Jennifer living in South Park where Teresa was able to afford a house it was she looked all over the city but ended up in South Park which she loved she came to love and Isaiah Kalebu through a set of different circumstances homeless at the time that he committed these crimes in the summer of 2009 crimes that killed Teresa Butts the woman who was living in South Park and uh, nearly killed her partner, Jennifer Hopper, who was able to run out of the house and survived to testify against their attacker in 2011 at a trial that I covered. Yeah, and that, that's what you won the, the Pulitzer Prize for. And I remember, you know, when you would come on the radio show on weekday. And I don't know, man, I saw it wearing on you. <laughs> I could see it wearing yeah. on you, the covering yeah. of that trial. Yeah, you might still be able to see it. I still feel... Uh, I still feel connected very strongly to all of this, and it was—it's it, not 
easy material to sit with for years. Um, but I've said this a number of times, and I really, it's really true. One of my coping strategies has been to make myself aware that there are other people, Jennifer Hopper, the survivor of the crime, Teresa's family, Isaiah Kalebu's family, a wide set of other people who are living with this in a more profound way and going on and doing inspiring things. And so I don't know if it's a good strategy, but I tell myself, you know, look at what Jennifer and Teresa's family are doing to make something good of this. Of this. They've started the Angel Band Project. Uh, they put on concerts to raise money for survivors of sexual violence. Just tremendous good out of something tremendously awful. And Isaiah's family goes on. I can try to go on and try to make something worthwhile out of these stories that I'm telling. Do you have a goal, a hope? I hope that more people will come to know Teresa and Jennifer, who are really inspiring individuals, who lived in circumstances not all that different from a lot of people. Their lives are lives that are not very far from ours, but the way they move through them is is really uh, inspiring. And I hope that people can learn from Jennifer's path since the crime. She's amazingly found forgiveness for the man who attacked her and killed her fiance. And so I hope that people learn from them and I hope they learn from the path of Isaiah Kalebu also. There's a lot that his path has to teach about serious shortcomings in our criminal justice and mental health systems, shortcomings that are not unique to Washington State that exist all over this country. People have been having now a national conversation about the failings of our criminal justice system and when we talk about the failing of our criminal justice system, we are necessarily also talking, although it doesn't get talked about enough, the we're talking about the failures of our mental health system as well. And so I hope, too, that this book will, at the very least, raise people's awareness of the consequences of our neglect of these systems that we really need, that people really need for their own health, for their own community's health, and also, in some circumstances, for community safety. Isaiah Kalebu was someone whose serious mental illness was connected to violence, and this was known by our local criminal justice and mental health system. It's important to say that the vast majority of people who live with mental illness are nonviolent. In fact, they're more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. But for this very small percentage of which Isaiah Kalebu was a part, we need more robust systems. He needed more robust systems, and I think the book shows over many years a failure to intervene or redirect in moments when if there had been more robust systems more of an ability to intervene the outcome in this case could have been much different do you find forgiveness in your heart for isaiah Kalebu? i i don't forgive give him for his actions. You know, I don't think what he did is forgivable. But I also feel like it's not as much my place to forgive or not forgive him as it is uh, the place of Jennifer and Teresa's family. And I think the more um, powerful and uh, 
hard to navigate territory for me is uh, do I feel sympathy for his path before the crime? Hmm. And and I I you know, I do feel some sympathy for his circumstances. Actually, I feel more than some sympathy. We don't control the city or the family into which we're born. It's a lottery that's out of our hands. And so before, long before he committed these crimes or any crimes, he was dealing with hard circumstances and the collective neglect that we show toward systems that are needed by people like Isaiah, people of little means and serious adverse life events. So I, I do feel uh, sympathy for that part of his path. You you had, what, two email exchanges with him while yes. he was in prison? Yes. Both of them, well, maybe lucid, but definitely paranoid. Definitely grandiose, I thought. I mean, I I received emails from him years after he was sent to prison. The contents of his email suggested to me that he was not in a better mental state than he had been during the trial or before that. And in a way that speaks to one part of this tragedy. Here was someone who really needed help and forceful intervention at points to help him navigate his serious mental illness. And Instead, before the crimes against Jennifer and Teresa, he just bounced in and out of our criminal justice and mental health system in ways that weren't productive. And then he committed this crime and allegedly some other serious crimes also before it. And the cost of that is huge. I tried to tally it up in the book in order to show people uh, the cost of failing to prevent earlier. But now he sits in prison as evidenced by the emails, not, you know, probably not very well treated. And we are paying to keep him there for life. And the cost of his life incarceration, plus the cost of his trial, which the public paid for, and his appeals, which the public paid for, that's going to be over $3 million to the taxpayers of Washington State. It would have cost much less than $3 million to try to intervene earlier. Unlike Teresa's family and Jennifer's family and, and Isaiah's family, you could have been done. What were some of the triggers that made you decide you needed to keep delving into this and to write a book? One was that in every direction I looked in this story, there was someone with lessons to teach, either through their actions or through their path. The other was that I have worked in Seattle as a journalist now for... Um, 16 years, I guess, a little more. And when I started here in 1999, I was an intern at the Seattle Times, and my job was just to write uh, police blotter stuff. I was on the night cop shift. I would come in at 4, I think, and I would leave at midnight, and I would write those little police blotter blurbs, you know, about someone killed or someone buried in a trench in one case. And, I mean, I knew then what I was doing was somewhat useful information but not the whole story and I spent you know a lot of other years writing about crimes and I never felt like I was doing the story that I wanted to do I never felt like I was getting at the whole picture or really providing something that was worthwhile I I, 
feel and I think this book shows that the crime does not start at the moment of the criminal action and the consequences don't end at the moment of the guilty verdict and so I thought that there was an opportunity here to try to do that thing that I felt that I had never been able to do. You also got an email from, uh, or some kind of contact from uh, uh, Isaiah's half-sister? Deborah. Deborah. Yeah, I actually met with her and spoke to her on the phone. She wasn't pleased with the portrayal of him and her family. At first, yeah. Well, she probably still is not pleased. Uh, So I wrote a series of stories um and one of the the second story i wrote in 2009 after this crime occurred was an attempt to understand isaiah's path and that was my first attempt and i I look at it now and it's very perfunctory i know a lot more now than i did then but the headline that it was given in the stranger was the mind of kalebu and uh you know in retrospect i probably should have pushed back against that headline um but it certainly uh, well i didn't at the time so that's on me and it certainly didn't sit well with uh deborah who when i called her years later you know years after the story had run and disappeared and been recycled and turned into you know i don't know what the compost that we get back from cedar grove and put in our gardens (laughs) it was still in her mind and she was still upset about it. It was the first thing she said to me. How do you know the mind of Kalebu? You know nothing. You don't know what my family went through. And one of the great things I found about working on a book is that you can I was able to hear that and apologize for that and sit with that for a little while. And come back to Deborah and, you know, say, well, I've heard you. I think you're right. How about now? Can we talk now? Can you tell me what I don't know? And having the time to be able to do that was invaluable to me, and I hope um, makes this book more valuable. We we hear a lot from Deborah, and I think her voice and story are very powerful. This crime and these crimes are inevitably part of the failures of the system. The system fails people in many different ways. It fails people of color in very profound ways. How did race play a part in the crimes, in their lives, and in the story you were telling? Well, I think I could put it this way. Often the media fails also. Yes. And we present a one-dimensional portrait of simple evil. And that could have been done in this case, you know, Uh, and it could have plugged right in to very old narratives, racist narratives, that we have in this culture about African-American men coming out of nowhere and doing harm. I was interested in not fitting yeah. into those patterns. And I, I hope that in trying to show the path of Isaiah's life, it very quickly forces the reader to abandon, I hope anyway, as much as one can, those kind of cookie-cutter narratives that we are programmed to drop crimes like this into. And you see something much more complicated and much more complex and something that when you get to his interaction with the system, the systems that failed him, well, that traces right back to us. We pay for those systems with our tax dollars. We elect the politicians who we allow to neglect them. 
And so I hope that people see in the portrait of Isaiah's path and the failures of our public social safety net to reach out to him when he needed it, to intervene when he needed it. I hope they see a collective failure there because I do. How did you find, as you had to dig into the systems, the institutions, how did you find their response to you? Well, uh, some of them were a little more guarded. For example, the Superior Court Judge Brian Gain, who uh, saw Kalebu in the many months before these crimes, saw him repeatedly. He would only exchange letters with me, but we did exchange letters. And a district court judge who also saw uh, Isaiah Kalebu in the months before the crime, he he was way more you know open and forthright, and we talked on the phone uh, a couple times at length. And for both of them and for other people connected to the mental health system and uh, other aspects of his path, I mean, they, they're not pretending that this system is as it should be. The Supreme Court justices in Washington State have for years, many, many years, been on a campaign called Justice in Jeopardy. They've been trying to tell the public and the state legislature that we dangerously underfund our courts. And these judges agree with that basically. They're overwhelmed and overworked and don't have the time or even in some cases just the simple computer resources that would allow them to put the pieces together uh, in a case like this. I show an instance of that in the book. That That was when Isaiah, uh, just a few weeks before he attacked Jennifer and Teresa, he was in district court in Judge O'Malley's courtroom. And he was in trouble for having gotten into an altercation with police officers in a public park and they tasered him and shot him with beanbag rounds and arrested him and this was in a way a good de-escalation he could have been shot and he appeared before this judge well he was already under orders from another judge king county superior court judge brian gain to be in treatment which he wasn't to not have you know get not to get in any legal trouble to not commit any law violations and here he was in a situation that suggested he was at least violating both of those orders if not others and so when judge o'malley and district court saw isaiah because of our underfunding of our courts and their computer systems in the state that birthed microsoft and has given microsoft millions if not billions in tax breaks over the years Judge O'Malley's computer could not communicate well enough with Judge Gaines' computer so that he could see the particulars of Judge Gaines' order and know that, uh, you know, Isaiah had been specifically ordered to do this and not do that. He didn't know really who he had in front of him, and so he let Isaiah go. And not long after that, Isaiah's aunt filed for a restraining order against him, saying she was worried about her own safety. And the day after that, her house was burned down in an arson and she was killed. And not long after that, um, Teresa and Jennifer were attacked. And so you see this picture that wasn't put together, partly for lack of resources, of uh, a man on a path of escalating violence. And you can also see shortcomings in the mental health system. I, I trace those. So we were just talking about the criminal justice system, but, you know, This all happens, the crime happened in 2009. Remember that the financial crisis hit in 2008, and the response of our state legislature was when they got in a budget crunch because of the financial crisis to first slash social services. 
And in 2009, for example, there was a 23 or $24 million cut to our state's mental health system taking effect. So this is the system that Isaiah is tossed into, this overburdened, underfunded, overworked system. And when he shows up at his community treatment clinic and then stops showing up very quickly after that, no alarm is sounded. What are some of your conclusions? I'll give you a broad answer and then a specific answer. In general, I th- I came away from doing this book with the lesson really ingrained in me that prevention is worth investing in. You, It's hard because you can't, by definition, you can't see what you've prevented with your investments in prevention because that thing didn't happen. But here's an opportunity to look backwards and see what the absence of prevention can lead to. So, yes, a lot more money toward early interventions, toward a more robust safety net, toward sufficient mental health systems for people who can't afford private mental health care and really need it for their their own life, for their own safety sometimes, and sometimes for our own safety. And then, specifically, in this case, there is a law in New York called Kendra's Law that was created in... Well, out of something that happened in the very late 90s when a a seriously mentally ill man who had violence connected to his mental illness and had been in and out of uh, public mental health systems pushed a woman onto the subway tracks and killed her. Her name was Kendra Webdale, and this law became known as Kendra's Law. And it instituted well-funded assisted outpatient treatment basically more robust community treatment for people who really need it, people like Isaiah Kalebu or like the man who committed this crime would have needed. And then it also establishes a mechanism for cases where someone is on a very precipitous descent but is resistant to treatment, which was the case with Isaiah Kalebu. And it says basically, and I'm simplifying here because there are a lot of intricate protections built in to protect civil liberties, But it says that if you have a history of serious mental illness that is connected to violence and your refusal to take medication for that mental illness and and you refuse and there are violent incidences a couple of times, again, I'm simplifying, but uh, you can be put into assisted outpatient treatment. And And basically you have wraparound care and someone watches you very closely and makes sure you are taking your medication and getting the help you need. And if you don't do that, you appear before a judge, and one of the consequences can be involuntary commitment. What do we have, and why is it still a shortfall? We now have provisions like Kendra's law in Washington state law, but what we don't have is robust funding for the prevention end of it, for the wraparound services, for the programs that keep someone from getting to the point that Isaiah Kalebu got to. Again, we are skimping on prevention and taking steps on the punitive side. And we've also passed um, something called called Joel's Law. Again, we haven't funded this appropriately, but it allows um, families that find themselves basically in over their heads with a family member who is seriously mentally ill. And we've seen stories about this. Um, and the, the law, this law in Washington State is called Joel's Law. It's named after a man who was killed by police after he got into a confrontation with them at a time when his family was trying, says they were trying to appeal to the system to involuntarily commit him, but it wouldn't. So, For his own mental problems. Yes. So Joel's Law gives um, families a, an appeal. 
it gives the family a right they didn't have and say, wait, you need to take a much more serious look at this because we, we don't know what to do with this person and you've just thrown him back to us or out onto the streets. Take another look. And that would have been a good route for Isaiah's family um, in the years before this crime, but the law didn't exist then. You talked about the Jennifer and Teresa's family and Jennifer and, and, and even Kalebu's family. They, they live with this. This is how they're, and they have to process it by finding pathways to healing. You finish the book, you're in the whirlwind, but then you're going to have to look around. How are you, how are you feeling? Do you feel any obligations to follow through on this particular aspect of your career? I, I think I can answer this way. I feel an obligation to the people that, the people who shared their story with me to point out as loudly as I can the avenues for change, whether it's changes in mind, you know, or just disposition on the part of policymakers, or whether it's more awareness, or whether it's specific policies. All of that is actually pointed toward in the book. And I, I, I want to do whatever I can to push forward the lessons of this book. I'm, I don't know where that will take me right now. Did you expect journalism to take you in this direction? <laughs> I mean, no. in a way, this is kind of what journalism is about, right? Finding an issue, being committed to it. Yeah. Injustice. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, th- I do feel like this is the best that I've ever been able to do with my journalism. You know, this is the best work that I've, I've ever been able to uh, put together. And what'd you say? Part of what kept you going was that they had shared their story and you were obliged to make sure it got out. To make something worthwhile out of it in the same way that Jennifer and Teresa's family are making something worthwhile out of it in the same way that uh, Isaiah's family is making lives that are worthwhile even after living through all of this. All right, Eli. Eli Sanders' book is While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Young Man's Descent into Madness. Nice being here with you, Steve. Eli and I spoke at a picnic table on a sunny day in Seattle's Volunteer Park. Next week on That Stack of Books, in honor of Valentine's Day, a look at love stories and romances. What's your favorite love story? Send us a message over Facebook, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher, or on Twitter, at That Stack. Thanks for listening.